You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Death and taxes. The saying goes that those are the two things that are absolutely certain in life. But for death and taxes, you have to have life. And life starts at a very specific moment. This moment, the time when a person's life begins. Now, we often strive to define our place in the world, but we neglect to realize the importance of our time in the world. Say, for example, baby boomers, whose time started between 1946 and 1964, they would have completely different set of opportunities and risks when compared to, say, millennials who were born between 1977 and 1995. Everything from education, uh, technology, job opportunities, wealth accumulation, pension benefits, all will vary greatly when comparing generational demographics. Neil Howe, the author of The Fourth Turning, and the person who literally coined the term millennials, walks us through some of the insights that come from analyzing demographic cycles, and looks ahead at what our current demographic phase tells us about the future of economics, politics, and society as a whole. One attribute of millennials is they don't mind being dependent on other people Mm -hmm. in a way that's constantly shocking, Xers and boomers, (laughs) where we have to have... Save to the cloud? No, I want my own in my magnet right under my desk, you know? And and whether it's car, no, I want my own car, you know? And apartment, no, I want my own. It seems these millennials, they they go into these cities, they live with other people, they don't mind sharing their bathroom, they share their kitchen, they share their rides, they share their, you know, you have have the sharing economy, which they're very comfortable with. I mean, cars is interesting. We, we do a lot of surveys with Nickelodeon, and you ask kids who are 12, 13 years old now, when are you going to get your license and driver's license? Mm. And their answer today is, you know, Mom, do I have to? This week on Adventures in Finance, Demographics. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have a regular long short segment with a twist this week uh, in which Aaron, maybe, and I discuss the good and the not so good stories of the week. Okay, my my long for the week is it's not going to make me very popular back in San Francisco, but I'm going long the Los Angeles Lakers. My short for the week is uh, the number four. And specifically, I'm choosing the number four for a story that I read a short while ago and I forgot to include last week. And finally, in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, We speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made and ask them to share a pearl of wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Yeah, and this week we've got a very, very good friend of mine uh, from New York City, Simon Mikhailovich, who is the founding partner of Tocqueville Bullion Reserve uh, and one of the most original thinkers and best communicators uh, that I've come across in in the last several years. So I'm excited to have Simon come and share his thoughts with us. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is May 25th, 2017, and welcome to episode 17 of Adventures in Finance. Now, if you're expecting the Bitcoin episode this week, our sincerest apologies. Our producer, James, had to rush home to take care of his new baby girl, so 
Instead, we are rolling out our emergency Neil Howe episode this week. Um, but this is an episode that we've been wanting to air for some time now. Um, and Rowling Grant had some really interesting comments around this interview. And it's really timely because, you know, millennials are all the rage. But Neil Howe is someone who coined the term millennials and has some forward-looking comments about future generations and also where we are in terms of his broader forth-turning framework. So you definitely don't want to miss this interview. But all right, let's move right along. Grant, it's great to have you here this week. Well, I'm back after my little trip to Europe, which was uh, a lot of fun, some beautiful scenery, but it's it's sort of this jet lag thing. As you get older, I'm telling you, it just kills you. Really, huh? Oh. Does it, do you have any like tricks or tips from like your travel? I mean, you travel a lot, so maybe you have some uh You know, I wish I, had some, you... I wish I had some tips. If anyone out there listening wants to send me some tips how to get over jet lag, uh, please, please, please send them in. Well, either that or we just, let's, let's arrange the schedule for recordings at three in the morning when I'm wide awake. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how it's going to work here. I mean, we've done some crazy hours while you're in Singapore, when you're in South Africa. We, we've we've uh, gotten up at some weird, weird times. All right, but well, happy to do it. We'll make the best of it. Yeah, well, sounds good. Uh, so for those of you who've been following us, and if you're wondering where James, our producer, is, he's uh, he's away. Because... He is away. James, the producer, is, uh, or his wife, rather, is about to give birth, which uh, is great news for them, and great news for me, because he's not sitting next to me today, so... <laughs> <laughs> he will be back, um, but not until after the birth. So, James, if you're out there listening, we wish you well with that. But that leaves me in charge of the audio equipment, which is also pretty scary. Hey, listen, I, I'm happy to delegate responsibility to you or the plant in the corner, if it wasn't James. Wow, I've never been compared to a plant in the corner, but uh, maybe we'll cut that out. I don't let's know. see what kind of a mess we can make of this between us. Yeah, well, let's, let's do it, Grant. So, uh, we'll start off with our long, short segment where we talk yeah, about... Oh, before you, before you get carried away with the whole long, short thing, uh, there's going to be a bit of a change this week. I'm going to kick you out of that seat because we have a special guest in the Cayman Islands who's joined us for a few days. Uh, he'll be familiar to Real Vision viewers, and he's actually appeared on the podcast before. Brent Johnson, uh, a good friend of mine from San Francisco, Santiago Capital. Brent, welcome to the Cayman Islands. Thank you, Grant. Good to be here. Uh, have to get down here a couple times a year just so I can wear a pink shirt. There you go. Well, look, somebody has to do it. It may as well be you because it certainly won't be me. So, Aaron, you get out of the chair. I'm going to go through the long short with Brent. So, Brent, what we do here is uh, Aaron and I look through the stories of the week and we try and find uh, a long and a short, just a, an idea that we think is a positive and an idea that we think is a negative. Uh, and just to give you a little clue, I'll go first just so you get the, the sense of what we're, what we're going to do here. And my long for the week, uh, I'm going long short walks, which sounds a bit confusing, there's a great article in um, The New Yorker which talks about the advantages of going for a walk and how it helps you think. And apparently a guy called Thomas de Quincey has somehow, I don't know how, but he's calculated that William Wordsworth, uh, the English poet who wrote I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, uh, his poetry is filled, as de Quincey says, with tramps up mountains, through forests and along public roads. And somehow he's figured out that Wordsworth walked 180,000 miles in his lifetime which uh, comes down to an average of six and a half miles a day starting from the age of five. Now, I don't know if he lived a long way from school or what went on, but uh, supposedly this group of scientists have figured out that when we do go for a walk, the heart pumps faster, which I think we all know, circulates the blood and oxygen, not just the muscles, but everywhere, including to the brain. And supposedly this walking at our own pace creates what the guys call an unadulterated feedback loop between the rhythm of our bodies and the mental state that we can't actually sink into and tune into quite so easily when we're when we're walking or when we're jogging you know we're all, i think we all instinctively know that when you hear fast music you tend to run faster or drive faster or whatever it may be but this is just saying the study that if you just walk at a very casual pace you kind of free your mind up to do all sorts of uh, creative thinking and the test results demonstrate that 
after a casual walk, you uh, you tend to think better and more creatively. So I am long short walks, which I think is uh, an excellent antidote to uh, strenuous exercise. That sounds fantastic. You know, it's uh, funny. I'm a, I'm actually a big fan of walking as well. So I'll dovetail off of that a little bit. I walk to work every day, and I'm one of those lucky guys in San Francisco who doesn't have an hour commute with San Francisco traffic. I, I walk to work, and it takes me about 10 minutes. Now, is it uphill or downhill? Well, I, like, like I said, Grant, I walk to work. I don't walk home from work. <laughs> that, 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 that um, explains walking, you walk, live on a hill. Walking home is straight uphill. <laughs> Um, but I also about four or five times a day, I'd get up from my desk and I walk outside and walk around the block a couple of times just to kind of get away from the screen and kind of get away from the boredom of, uh, of, you know, just sitting there in one place and being sedentary. Uh, my belly doesn't quite uh, look like I do that too often, but it would be even bigger if, if I didn't do those walks. Well, it, it just frees your mind up, right? Just getting yeah. a change of scenery, change of atmosphere, just getting outside. It, it really does help. Well, and, you know, I, I should also say, you know, the name of uh, my, my, my firm, Santiago Capital, it comes from the Camino de Santiago, where I actually walked 500 miles across Spain. So I, I don't want to walk 500 miles again, so I'm all for the short walks. Yeah, I don't think 500 miles. That's when I said I was long short walks, 500 miles, that does not, <laughs> uh, that wasn't on my horizon. Well, that's, so now, okay, so this is, that's my long. So now uh, you need to give me your long for the week. Okay, my, well, my long for the week is it's not going to make me very popular back in San Francisco, but I'm going long the Los Angeles Lakers. Really? Yeah. Yep. Los Angeles Lakers. Yeah, and I'm not even a Lakers fan. That's, a, that's a ballsy call. But if we're just trying to make money, I'm going along the Lakers. At what time frame are we talking about? Oh, next uh, two to three years, they're going to be back on the top. And what, now what's the catalyst for this? Oh, the catalyst is that they got rid of uh, the previous owner's son. The, the, it was kind of a family drama. The, the wife, or the, I'm sorry, the sister uh, exerted majority control and kicked out her brother and, right. and her brother's crony. And so, you know, they've been down for two or three years, uh, but everything's cyclical. Uh, it's too big of a team, too good of a team, too much history to be bad much longer. They've got a great young coach. They've got a top draft pick coming in. And don't dismiss the fact that the, the Clippers really had an opportunity to take over L.A. basketball over the last two or three years. And, and they did to a certain extent, but I think they missed their opportunity. Uh, I think they're on the decline. I think the Lakers are coming back. Now, are there any, are there any lessons here for us in terms of markets? Because if you think about it, the Lakers, the Showtime era was the early 80s, go-go, bull markets, uh, leading right into, I guess they peaked just after the 87 crash, the Magic Johnson worthy. And is, is there any signals here that suggest that maybe we are about to enter another screaming bull market because the Lakers are back? You know, that's a good question. I didn't think about that, but, uh, but potentially, you know, uh, Showtime was fantastic. And then they were great again in the late 90s with Kobe Bryant there and uh, Shaquille just O'Neal. Just in time so, for the Yeah. Bro. Um, and then we had the bust right there. So, yeah, so maybe maybe, maybe we're due for a, for a run in the markets right. along with the Lakers. The cyclicality of markets in the Los Angeles Lakers. All right, well, look, my short, uh, my short for the week is uh, the number four. And specifically, I'm choosing the number four for a story that I read a short while ago and I actually forgot to include last week. But uh, for some reason, the SEC have a, given approval for a four-times leverage ETF. Now, call me old-fashioned. But I really don't see why the world needs a four times leverage ETF. You know, I was I, I was reading the story, and all I could think of was there's something about Mary and the guy who's got this great idea. You know, seven minute abs, not eight minute abs. I'm going to come up with seven minute abs, and it's going to it's going to change the world. And you just think, you know, this is pure speculation. There is no other reason to own a four times leveraged ETF, and it's pure leverage on top of the three times leveraged ETF, which clearly wasn't enough for some people. And the thing that worries me about this is the amount of money that's being pumped into ETFs, this move to passive management. Um, and you know, this offers notionally a way for people to juice returns by getting the extra leverage. And we know how this ends. You know, it's, for me, for the SEC to, uh, who are you know, there to protect investors, for them to uh, 
to approve this thing is just a wanton desertion of duty, if you ask me. Yeah, I can't disagree with you. And actually, uh, my short will dovetail upon that as well, if uh, if you want me to give that to you. All right, well, let's hear it. Uh, robo-advisors. Ah, yes, okay. And that's something that uh, we're starting to run into in our business. And I think it's uh, it's another symptom of a, of a inflated uh, bull market. And I, that doesn't mean the markets can't keep going up, but... Uh, and it goes along with the the four times ETFs and the the passive investing and you know just put your money on cruise control and don't worry about it and it sounds great because the fees are low and the mod, you know the back testing says it's all great but you know let's have a couple five hundred down point days in the, yeah. in the Dow and uh, when you can't get a hold of a, an advisor to talk to um, we'll we'll see how much these people love the the robo advisors. Well, at how, that how point. far how far do they back test these things? I wonder. Yeah, I'm curious yeah. to know because obviously things have changed so much since '08. Uh, yeah, we, we, we function in completely different markets. They're unrecognizable. Well, I think typically, you know, when somebody launches, they'll backtest for the last three or five years, right. which, which is completely irrelevant in, in the exactly. overall scheme of things, right? Because the last three or five years have been, um, you know, you look at them historically, they're, they're, they're definitely a few standard deviations from the norm. Yeah, yeah, And, sure. uh, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that, uh, that people will always pay for good advice. Um, and if you can actually get somebody and actually talk to them, because... It is an emotional journey as well. And yeah. a lot of times in our job, we end up being a psychologist, psychiatrist, as much as we are finance guys. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a great believer that people should always pay for good advice. I don't yeah. know about wood, yeah. but, uh, well, you know, it, good point. It, there's, there's, there's nothing so expensive as saving money in these markets, right? Exactly. That's, that's the big problem. All right. Well, look, thanks, for, thanks for coming in. And thanks for taking Aaron's spot in the long and short segment. And I guess we better let you take that fine shirt of yours down to the beach and do it proud. I'm going to go take my shirt off, scare people, and jump in the water. Well, let's get outside the building before you do that. Brent, thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, Aaron, welcome back into the chair. It was, uh, I thought I'd give you a little break there. Look, I'm always happy to give up the chair, especially when we have a contributor that comes into the office. It's actually pretty pretty cool to see someone who you normally see on a TV screen, right? Right. but actually in, in, in person. And he's um, a big dude, too. He, Brent yeah. is a big dude. Yeah, he is. And and I guess it's appropriate given you talked about basketball. He used to play basketball. He did used to play yeah. basketball to, to a reasonably high level, I, I'm led to understand. But in fairness by him, so who knows? Yeah, but you know, I I'm pretty sure you you got me out of the seat because I I'm I'm I might be leading you in terms of the uh, the long shorts or the Yeah, the possibly, point. possibly. But anyway, listen, we need to move on for the long short and get into our feature for the week. Well, Grant, before we move on to this week's feature, I actually want to remind our listeners about what you and Raul mentioned last week which is that the price for an annual subscription on Real Vision TV will be going up from the current price of $364 per year to $597 beginning on June 7th. And first of all, I want to thank all of you who signed up for a free trial after last week. And look, whether you decide to stick around for an annual subscription or even decide to cancel, please do let us know what you thought. And, you know, we'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, but for those of you who haven't signed up yet, you still got time. Just go to www.realvision.com and sign up for a free seven-day trial to get full access to our awesome suite of content. You know, we've really taken things to another level in the past couple of months with longer form and multi-part series like Travels with Jawad, or even the recently released five-part charting masterclass series with Peter Brandt, which <laughs> I'm proud to say I had the great opportunity to meet and work closely with Peter on an amazing series uh, in which he passes down knowledge he's accumulated from over 40 years of trading markets. So it's just phenomenal. You know, we've also got some new shorter form content, such as the actionable trade ideas, which really gets at the heart of why we're doing all of this, why we get involved with markets, and that's to make some money. So there's so much going on. If you haven't already, go to www.realvision.com and sign up for the free seven-day trial. Look, poke around, dive into the treasure chest of content, and be sure to take advantage of the current pricing 
of $364 before it goes up to $597 on June 7th. All right, moving right along. Yeah, so this week uh, we were featuring a past interview from Neil Howe, actually the latest interview because Neil has been um, Neil has been on the program a couple of times, uh, but we got the latest installment where he talks about so many interesting topics, he talks about Trump, he talks about millennials, and also talks about the, the latest generation, which is called the Homelanders. Yeah, it's, it was, it's fascinating. You know, sitting and talking to Neil, it was, it was just so interesting at the time. But you know, this is one of those interviews when you listen to it six months later, it becomes just so much more profound. When you, yeah. when, you, when you look at what he said then in the context of what's happened since, it's just remarkable how these demographic trends can signpost so much. And it's so appropriate given that we have a new, uh, a new generation yeah. coming into it. Yes, we need to come up with a, a name for that generation, I guess. Is James's child going to be a homelander or not? I technically I don't, I don't know. Maybe we will need to ask Neil about that. He did coin the millennials, so he did, if yeah. there's anyone to ask, it's Neil. All right. Can't wait to get stuck into this one, Neil Howe, Demographics. The Fourth Turning is one of those books that went viral amongst many of us in the industry when somebody first read it and said, you've got to read this. Yeah. I think it was Mark Hart first passed it on to me and everybody who's read it has gone, wow. It, it seems so logical and so obvious and the ramifications are so huge. I just think it's such a fascinating topic. Well, And it's funny, I've come across so many people when the book comes up, yeah, I'm reading it again. Right now, I've, I've, I've read it three times. Yeah, exactly right. It is one of those. But if anyone out there listening hasn't read it, um, you really should. The fourth turning. Uh, anyway, let's get into the clips. When we look at the future, I've been talking about putting cards down on the table, and as as events happen, some of them get turned up. So you have up cards and down cards, and I think there are a number of down cards that have been turned up. You know, we talked about the rise of uh, uh, the appeal of an authoritarian leader, mm. frankly whose appeal is that he can get things done, right? Man of action. Uh, and is, you know, cuts through all the BS, you know, to get things done. Uh, um, this is an attribute of fourth, fourth yeah. turnings that we talked about. Authority, just as a concept, being able to exercise it, um, uh, is a very important discovery in a fourth turning. Um, you know, one way we, we sometimes talk about turnings is, is the supply and demand for order, social order. And, and each turning has its own unique supply and demand equation. You know, you think of, uh, you think of the American high, you know, remember the Truman and, and, uh, and, and Eisenhower and John Kennedy presidencies uh, where America had, you know, there was a high supply of order and there was a high demand for order. Yeah. And everyone felt pretty good in a pretty ordered world. In the awakening, the supply of order remains high, but the demand for order declines, and that creates the arguments and the passion and the and the and the revolts and the, and the and the culture clashes of, the, of that era. In in the third turning in the nineties, the, the the supply of order um, uh, and the demand for order are low, right? And so everyone's happy in a world of sort of free agents and government yeah. not doing very much. Uh, very often, technocrats just sort of in charge of the process, yep. right? And I think it's interesting, as we came out of a, a kind of a symbolic uh, event that happened there was, was 1989, 1990, you know, the decline of the 
the end of the Berlin Wall and you know certainly in Europe and around the world the idea that we would be without walls a borderless state all individuals would be free and we had kind of the the, the you know you think of the the leaders of that I like the John Major the Vaclav Havel yeah. or, or Gorbachev and the leaders Zheng Zemin do you remember in in, yeah. in China this was their famous third generation of leaders these were all technocrats who were just setting up a system a process where individuals could get what they want and we were kind of happy with that. Well, now we're moving into this fourth turning where now the, the, the supply of order remains low, but the demand for order is rising. Mm. Okay, that creates fourth turnings. And suddenly we want someone to impose order again because people are feeling abandoned. Yeah. They're lost. They need help. Um, and so we no longer are looking for a process. We're looking for outcomes. This is all stuff that we wrote about we wrote about in the fourth turning and the rise of populism, an intense interest in various definitions of community, whether it's regional, local, national, which all you know, the very idea of community presupposes in versus out. Mm -hmm. That's what a community is. It's what's in versus, you know. Can't remember, uh, you know, Lao Tzu. You know, a, a bowl is, you know, it's 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 what it's not as well as right. what it is. Right. <laughs> you know, the uh, the old. Anyway, I don't want to get get too uh, you know get too metaphysical here, but but that's what a community is. It, it separates in from out, and and all of these things come back in in a fourth in a fourth turning, and and it's associated with with the aging of each of these generations we see today. <laughs> A demand for order, a demand for authoritarians. I mean, okay, we got them. <laughs> yeah, and it looks like it's spreading. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, this is why this book, I think, is so important for people to read. I mean, it, it's 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 not a difficult book to read. That's the surprising thing. You look at it and you go, oh, man, that, that looks like a piece of work. But, it, I mean, it's just it's just filled with stuff like this. And, you know, you and I are both uh, adherents to cycles in nature, in business, in everything. And I think... When you read this and, and you look at the parallels that Neil brings up right through history, you can see it repeating time and time and time again. And it's such a good framework to have as to what might come next. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but it might come next. And also, it's a simple thing. If you bring it down to the individual level, we all tend to rebel against our parents. And that's what creates these generational differences. <laughs> it, you rebel against your parents and your grandparents, and that's why you get these kind of four um, kind of waves of, of, of different thinking. And I think that that's one of the key things that there is in all of this is we're humans and we kind of act in the same kind of yeah. way and it's vaguely predictable, well, cyclical. And, and, and to Neil's point, you know, the, about this, this we rebel against their parents, but then when we have our own kids, we try and impose order on them, right? Because that's that's the cycle. That's the, the cycle of life. I mean, it's just uh, it's just a fascinating book. Uh, it's so much in it. Um, but we'll get on to the next clip, uh, which specifically talks about uh, the emergence of leaders during periods uh like this, which are fourth turnings. That's interesting. I mean, that's all kind of part of the script, isn't it? Um, I think that leaders are, when you look at them from a generational standpoint or a turning standpoint, you see that leaders, um, to some extent, and I, I, I don't want to kind of side with Tolstoy here, but but history makes leaders as much as leaders make history. And the the fourth turnings bring forward people mm. who were never thought to have any particular promise earlier in life. Um, 
I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, the last fourth turning, obviously the iconic leadership of, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, through the Great Depression and World War II. A guy who was considered a, a lightweight uh, uh, in, you know, his university, uh, his college, uh, was never considered terribly, you know, uh, had any particular ambition. He was a very rich guy, could do whatever the hell he wanted, right? And he was considered kind of a, he dabbled in stuff. Yeah. Um, and, well, okay, then he had polio, and he had various things that kind of got his life on track and gave him a greater sense of edge. But as, as, uh, uh, as, as the story's been told many times in... Um, and in 1932, there were a lot of other Democrats who thought this was a great time for them. And he just barely got the nomination. You know, he was considered by many unfit and, and he had serious, serious opposition to his candidate. And many, many thought he really was not the adequate or the right man for the time. We all forget that in hindsight, you know, or, or with the utterly unlikely a possibility that an Abraham Lincoln became, I mean, what were the odds of that? He was, he, he didn't have a prayer of even becoming the nominee of the Republican party, much less the Republican candidate ever getting the presidency. Sounds familiar, right? right? Well, this is the thing that's happening. Yeah. And this is why it's relevant to today, because what happens in fourth turning is that public history matters again, because suddenly as authority becomes more important, what government does becomes more important. I mean, if you have a period like the 1990s or the 1920s or the 1850s and government really isn't doing much, who really cares who gets yeah. elected, right? But when government starts being called upon to do more and more fundamental things, it really does matter. And, and one aspect of the fourth thing, as you are looking for new forms of authority, when you really have no mold, you don't really know where to go because you're, no one's used to this, right? that suddenly then these elections become so critical. History becomes contingent, in a radically contingent in a way that it's not in other eras. I mean, you know, I don't really need to say anything about that. I mean, everyone's going to listen to that and draw their own conclusions, make the associations themselves. But you know, when you talk to someone like Neil with such a profound knowledge and understanding of these historical cycles, you know, he brings up the things that are crucial to understand in the cyclic case. You know, he talks there about the freewheeling 1990s, the 1920s, the 1850s. And, you know, you look at what happened immediately after that. Right? We, had, we had the tech bubble, the crash, we had uh, the Great Depression, and we had the U.S. Civil War. And that's what happens at these junctures in history, at the end of these cycles. You know, the parallels between Donald Trump and FDR, okay, different parties, but it's the same story again and again and again. And, and, and people have this remarkable refusal to look at history and assume it'll play out similarly. They will say, well, there's a reason that won't happen again, but it always does. That's an extraordinary thing. Every time, like you, I love cycles. So every time I point out the similarity, everyone goes, no, it's different this time. Yeah. You know, it was raining on a Tuesday look, you know, 50 years ago, and it's not so... I'm like, frankly, I don't care. What we're looking for is the overall similarities and looking for a pattern within that. And once you find those, there's so much information within all of that. There's so much to be learned from history. And I think being an economic historian is probably the single most powerful thing you could do to educate yeah, yourself. I, I completely agree. I mean, it's funny, you know, we're talking about human nature. It's nature, right? Therefore, it's natural. It's going to keep happening and keep reoccurring. Anyway, we'll carry on with Neil, um, because as I said, you and I don't need to add much to this. It's just fascinating what he's saying. And we'll, we'll clip into um, where this uh, fourth turning actually is going to take us. 
typically a fourth turning, all of these turnings last about the length of a generation. So they last maybe 21, 22, 23 years. I mean, just a little bit more than 20 years. And, and the timing of this, by the way, is governed just by the human life cycle and the phases of life we go through. So it works its way out in a, in a macro context yeah. instead of the micro. But uh, the fourth turning kind of has its own morphology. I mean, it starts with the catalyst, you know, sort of the, uh, the crash of 29. Uh, we think the catalyst was the was the crash of 2008. Right. Yeah. yeah, and and the, and the election of Barack Obama sort of happened simultaneously with that. Um, the 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 next thing that happens is what we call regeneracy, and that's the discovery, even in the midst of crisis or in the midst of incredible uncertainty, the discovery of of a, in in a time of complete distrust of institutions when nothing works, nothing is going right. Uh, some locus of authority that people will accept, sort of a, 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 a germ that can grow, you know, for, for, a new, for a new order, for something new happening. I think um, uh, in, in, in our last fourth turning, this would have been the, 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 what's called the second New Deal, but the, the real kind of radical New Deal that started after the election of '36. You know, so maybe you're talking about, you know, 37, 38, something like that. This is a new locus of authority uh, that people could build on. It was sort of a new idea, a new way of ordering things. And then and then you move forward to the climax, which is, you know, then you have to actually defeat all the problems. You have to overcome all the adversity and and everything which tends to gather strength against you. And that's the climax. Um, now, in the context historically, these are often wars. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily wars. Um, and then finally, the resolution, and that's the uh, that's when all the new institutions are, are raised, the treaties are signed. I think in our last fourth turning, that would have been the enormous political infrastructure, institutional infrastructure we set in place to run the world at the end of World War II. Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of yeah. the IMF and the UN and the World Bank and Bretton Woods and just all of this stuff. And then, you know, it just ran on autopilot for several decades. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. When we talk about politics, when we talk about political trends, we still use the word post-war, post-World yeah. War II. I mean, that's how we periodize things from that moment, you know, as... as as uh, you know, that was the moment of the creation. You know, so I think it was Dean Acheson book. You know, President the Creation. That was the creation of the new order, and that's what we do for politics. Interestingly, though, in, in the culture, we say since the '60s. Yeah, right. You know, because that's a different year zero, right? So the inner world and the outer world, in looking at turnings, have different calendars. I think one of the interesting things here Neil talks about was whether the catalyst for this fourth turning was 2008. I'm not entirely convinced yet. I kind of feel the bigger catalyst is still to come, which is you know something we've been talking about on the podcast, which is about the demographic crisis and what that means for people. Um, if, you're back, if you remember back in the 20s, we had the, I think it was called the Gentleman's Panic back in yeah. 1920, when you know the market fell significantly, uh, 50% or so. It recovered. We had a huge boom going into 1929, and then the real issue started. I'm still not entirely convinced that uh, that 2008 was the really big event. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Um, it's, it's the person who described this best to me was was 
my buddy Simon Mikhailovich, he said, you know, when you're, when you're driving a car and you slam your brakes on and have a near miss and the guy just kind of just misses your car, he said your heart's pounding out of your chest and for the next couple of days you drive through that intersection and you're really on edge. He said, but, you know, a week later, you're carrying on as if nothing happened and then two weeks later is when the truck side swipes you. And, and I think you're absolutely right. What we saw in 08 was the start of something, potentially, but I don't think it was... It was the inside. You know, I don't know why we're talking about this because everybody's now on Amazon trying to buy the fourth turning, so not, no one's listening to us anymore. <laughs> let's let's jump into the next clip um, in which Neil talks about millennials. One attribute of millennials is they don't mind being dependent on other people mm-hmm. in a way that's constantly shocking Xers and Boomers. <laughs> yeah. Where we have to have save to the cloud. No, I want my own. Right. You know, in my magnet right under my desk. You know, and and whether it's car. No, I want my own car. You know, and apartment. No, I want my own. Like, see these millennials. They they go into these cities. They live with other people. They don't mind sharing their bathroom. They share their kitchen. They share their rides. They share their. You know, you have you have the sharing economy, which they're very comfortable with. Um, I mean, cars is interesting. We, we do a lot of surveys with Nickelodeon, and you ask kids who are 12, 13 years old now, when are you going to get your license and driver's license? Mm. And their answer today is, you know, Mom, do I have to? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a big change. Yeah, that is a big change. So what drove us to know exactly when we were going to get our license? Risk-taking and independence. Those are the two things you could reliably, those are two brand markers that could reliably sell cars to young people. Those things don't really um, carry much with millennials, you know, risk-taking and independence. And these are generational changes. Yeah, they also don't have as much. That's true. And they're making, they're making do with less. Um, And, and interestingly, they're, there's, Deadedness among millennials per capita over the last 15 years has gone down markedly <clears throat> for every category of debt, hugely for mortgages, uh, cards, credit cards, or whatever it is, with the obviously fantastic exception of student, student debt, debt, which yes. has gone up, which is the one kind of investment they, they, they think they can't afford not to make. But in any case, um, looking ahead, and I think... You know, when you're still in your 20s, the idea of saving seriously for the future is still kind of a future-oriented thing they're doing, is um, is something we have to think seriously about. And it may be a new kind of economy with, you know, higher earnings yields, high div- higher dividend yields, you know, lower P.E. ratios, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, kind of, the kind of economy we used to have. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can know? invest in. Yeah. Well, yeah, that you can invest in if you're a young person. One thing that millennials are, as well as the generation coming after them, they're builders. Yeah. You know, they want to build, you know, all that, all that, all that horrible kind of spiritual inner emotional stuff that boomers worried about. Well, that was great for mom and dad, but you know, I want to go out and build stuff. You know, I want I want big things to work. And the, and the idea of an emerging generation that can think big about public spaces, instead of just inventing the next car, what about inventing the next transportation infrastructure, yeah. right? Move us to the next level, as they say in Sega Genesis. <laughs> I love that you can be talking about, uh, about millennials and throwing the Sega Genesis in there. It's, I have uh, no idea what that is. Of course you don't. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I agree with a lot of what Neil said. The one thing I would throw in there, though, um, 
is just the cost of everything and, and the fact that you know how much of this is 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 their nature and how much of it is the fact they share stuff because they can't afford that's exactly stuff. what i wrote down here on this yeah, bit of paper because you know I, I remember when i started work back in 1980 <laughs> um, you know within a couple of years of working i could afford to buy a house i mean it wasn't a big house but i could afford to buy a house and i could get my foot on the property ladder as, as people call it you know, that is completely unattainable now particularly if you've come out of college with you know seventy thousand dollars of student loan debt so I, you know i think to a big degree millennials are a product of the environment their their mindset and the way they do things is kind of been forced upon them yeah i agree so they can't afford to do things so i think for the world to essentially work and to have a transgenerational uh, transfer of assets asset prices need to be a lot lower yeah they do otherwise there's no buyer so whether that's the houses that the boomers have to sell or the shares that they need to sell yep. and all those other assets they need to be dramatically lower to allow millennials to be able to afford them well and to this this point that we're we're starting to do a lot of uh, focus on about the boomers retiring they are now going to be forced sellers and so if the bid is much lower, they can't sell them to each other because they're all in the same boat. So the buyers are going to have to come from that younger generation. And it's a great point you make. They are buyers lower down, as the old phrase goes. All right, well, let's uh, let's get on to the generation that's going to come after Homeland. There's a bit of a look into the future from Neil here when he talks about what, uh, what he calls the Homeland generation. In many ways, they are not going to shock people, okay? No one's going to be alarmed by the emergence of Homelanders. Uh, and in fact, we think that last time we, 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 we this, this, archetypally, this generation would be very similar to a generation that, that is often goes by the name of silent generation, mm-hmm. right? Um, the last time, you know, we think of the silent generation, we think of the generation that was just too young to, to participate in World War II, uh, but old enough to remember World War II. Uh, we define them in birth years as born between 1925 and 1942, sort of a, a little bit shorter generation than most. Um, and they were an amazing generation because <clears throat> child protection and, and child range became much more protective for the GI generation, yeah. you know, the, the New Deal generation, became smothering for these kids you know there's a depression there was a war going on right and so these were the these were the little rascals these were the shirley temples you know these are very well behaved kids in a very tight envelope of protection and when they came of age just after world war ii they surprised everyone because unlike the gi generation they didn't want to join the communist party or join an army that was going to conquer half the world uh, their motto instead was, we don't want to, we don't want to change the system. We want to work within the system. And this was the famous, uh, um, as Fortune magazine called them, the, the, the college class of 49 taking no chances was their magazine cover. But that's, that's the image, you know, the, the image of these, these sensitive kids who were almost middle-aged, you know, in, in their early twenties, you know, make think having very long time horizons thinking ahead, being very differential, not wanting to make any waves. After all, we've been through this huge crisis. So many people had died to build this order. What was I'm going to be that selfish? As to... So they were, they were good kids in that way. Um, their first question in, in job interviews were about pension plans. Yeah. And they got those defined benefit pension plans, right? They had kids incredibly young in life. Uh, because, well, we had an economy where they could afford to have kids. 
And they've done super well economically all their lives. You know, this is the Woody Allen generation. 80% of life is just showing up. So, th so they've done very well. And today there are people in their late 70s and 80s. Uh, and they are doing, they are, their median net worth relative to younger generations is far better than ever before in America. We've never seen elders so educated, uh, so wealthy, uh, and so nice. You know, and they're constantly setting up, you know, college trust funds for their grandkids and they're subsidizing. They're the ones who fund all the fa extended family vacations in America today. You know, <laughs> it's all these exes and boomers who have their their parents, you know, uh, fund these things. But 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 they're a wonderful generation. They're 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 a technocratic generation. They were always the expert. Interestingly, and this says something about their low profile in terms of leadership. This is probably, uh, undoubtedly, this is going to become the first generation never to occupy the White House. There's no president from this generation. They're completely leapfrogged. We went from George Bush Sr., who was a, a fighter pilot in World yep. War II, to Bill Clinton, who was born after World War II. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. You know, when Neil talks about this stuff, uh, you know, we, 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 we'd spend a lot of time talking about cyclicality, as we've, as we've pointed out. And you just wonder, this is chicken and egg to me, because you look at how Neil sees the homeland generation and what formed the last generation of similar ilk was coming out of a war. Now, does the cycle of these guys come in, or, or are we saying on a bigger level we're heading to a war that these guys will come out of? Because suddenly that's a topic that people are now ready and and willing to discuss whereas they weren't you know no more than a couple of years ago yeah i agree i mean the war thing is always slightly uh controversial but i think there's clear dotted lines where that could potentially happen now i'm not necessarily sure that war has to mean war either it can be stealth war it can be economic warfare there's yeah, just it's conflict. It's conflict it's conflict i agree yeah it's conflict that is catastrophic in some sort of nature and, yeah, I think the next generation of kids will come out of this exactly as the kids yeah. um, over World War II did as well. I think that's, yeah, I think it's dead right. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. All right, well, look, we've got one more clip. Um, and uh, Neil asked us a, a, a fascinating question. An interesting way to think about generations is one of many ways of kind of drawing boundary lines is to think about what a generation uh, does not remember. As sort of you know defining its 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 last birth cohort, right? So you think about the silent generation. What does it not remember? It doesn't remember anything before the Great Depression. Born in 1925, they really don't remember anything before the crash. Yeah. So the GIs all remember the Roaring Twenties as kids, you know, but the silent didn't. Boomers, what do they not remember? World War II, obviously. Generation X, what do they not remember? They don't remember the American High. And so a good test of an Xer is, <clears throat> do you remember John Kennedy's assassination? And a boomer does, an Xer doesn't. We get, finally get to, to this generation coming after uh, millennials, the homelanders. What will they not remember? They will not remember anything before 2008. Yeah. And that will mark them off. And it will mark them just as much as earlier generations have been. And the more we see history change... You know, the more we realize that there is no end of history in that sense, yeah. right? That we realize, yeah, these new eras that we're creating today will be every bit as different 
as the ones we remember. And I think that's one of the things we forget, you know, as we, we think of the present and the future as somehow featureless, yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, our, our past, yeah, they had these incredibly different moods, but the, the future is just going to be this featureless yeah. glide. Yeah. No, it's not. And you go back to the first page of the book and you start reading it again. I mean, it's, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it just, it, it blew my mind. It confirmed a lot of things that I was thinking and brought me into ideas I'd never thought of before. And to see the clear generational cycles, how they act, how they interact, is just amazing. And it's like being given a bit of a crystal ball. That's exactly right. It's, it's, it's these big themes. You know, we, we speak a lot about demographics, um, it, it, just in the ebb and flow and, and, and the, the, the huge changes and the trend changes that they entail being things that go through multiple decades. And this book gives you a great sense of, of what that looks like if you step back far enough. And, and it's a hard thing to do because we're going through demographic challenges right around the world now, but everyone takes them in isolation instead of stepping back and looking at this as a generational thing rather than a problem with China with the one-child policy or a problem with the US. With, you know, it, 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 this is a global phenomenon and it repeats, repeats and repeats. What's interesting is to see that this, this whole thing has shifted. So... The Japanese, for example, are 10 years older. Yeah. So their cycle is, is shifted to ours. And when we look at um, the monsoon region, they're about another 10 years younger again. And their boom is even bigger. And what I think, why you and I were inherently drawn to that monsoon thing, is because we have a framework of understanding of pretty much how this plays out. Yeah. You have a population that's actually, it's not, it's not 10 years, it's maybe 30 years younger than the, than the baby boomers are now. You have this enormous generation of people who are just starting out in life. I mean, the average age of most of these countries is around 35 years old. And once you use Neil House framework, it'll pretty much apply to those guys too. When we bring this back to investing, it's, it's about having the ability to see these big pictures and, and invest accordingly and not invest and get worried about the noise, but look at this and say, okay, look, I'm going to put some capital to work in an idea that may take 10 years to play out but you know what here's here's the roadmap this is what it looks like this is how it works it's all there you've just got to have the courage to understand how big these themes are and and how slowly they move through but they do move through yeah and i think you touched on the most important point is something like this gives you a framework you can't be an investor you can't understand the world we live in you can't even run a business without having a framework of the world we're in you know who your customers are how they're going to react to the goods that you want to sell them, how the investment market's going to react. And this generational framework is one of the longest of all, but one of the most useful because it gives you huge tailwinds. Baby boomers always had this massive tailwind behind them because they were driving everything. Yeah. And again, go back to the monsoon, this is why it interests me and you is the fact that we've got a ton of young people all ready to consume and do all the things the baby boomers did. All right, well... Uh... I've got some reading to do. I'm going to go back and read the full turning again, I think, now. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll move on with the podcast. So, Grant, coming, um, coming out of that interview, I, I remember the first time I watched that interview, I, I felt like I was traveling through time. It was such a trip because he's talking about these large cycles that happen over decades and, and even going back in time talking about Second World War, First World War. So it's one of those interviews where I, I love to come back to because it's like reference material. Yeah, you know? You know, you know, I mean, it's, it's very rare that you can actually say, you know, this guy wrote the book on something, but Neil did, right? You know, he and Bill Strauss wrote this book, um, The Fourth Turning, and it's become a Bible for so many people in trying to understand these demographic trends. And, you know, Neil has such a deep and encyclopedic knowledge of 
what is slowly starting to dawn on people is arguably the most important thing to understand right now as we watch the baby boomers come out of the workplace and start to retire. You know, the shift that we're seeing, and Neil lays it out so well in his book uh, and, and, and when he talks, is crucial for everybody to understand. And one thing that I'm trying to figure out, Grant, and maybe you can help me with this, is it's one thing to, to see these larger trends. Um, I mean, look, I haven't, <laughs> I say this with some embarrassment, that I haven't read The Fourth Turning yet, and I definitely should because it's, it's come recommended by so many uh, smart people. I definitely want to read it. It's at the top of my, my book list. But how do you take these larger trends and then synthesize it and make it applicable to, um, I guess, your your current outlook for investing, I mean, being on the near term or medium term, because, you know, these cycles that he talks about happen on such a long scale, time scale. Um, how do you how do you bring that back into informing some kind of like present day investment? Well, it's, it's important to understand that these these trends just should be an overarching framework. You know, this is we're essentially working within the demographic trend. That's it. everything else you do is really driven by those demographics. They, 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 they drive consumption, which is 70% of the US economy, for example. I mean, that's, that's an important dynamic to understand. And as the boomers retire, uh, as Raul and I have talked about, they will ratchet down their, their consumption very fast. And it's happening right now. So I think the important thing for people to take away once they, once they get a hang on these demographics is not the easy conclusion, which is, you know, these are too big for me to focus on, too big for me to really factor into decisions. But understand that they are the most important thing and understand them for what they are and then build everything else you have inside that framework. And that will give you a much better chance of understanding where the world's going. Yeah, well, first up, I should probably start reading that book. Uh, you really should read that book. In fact, don't come back in the office until you've read it. <laughs> well, we have the weekend to look forward to, so maybe I'll do it. Well, next up uh, is our last segment called Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom with the listeners, uh, with us, so that we can learn from it and hopefully not make the same mistakes. Yeah, this week, a great, great friend of mine from New York City, Simon Mikhailovich, the founding partner of Tocqueville Bullion Reserve, um, and one of the best thinkers and one of the best communicators. Uh, it's been my privilege to come across uh, during these Real Vision travels. So uh, it's great to have Simon on the show. So joining us this week is the founder of Tocqueville Bullion Reserve and a Real Vision TV favorite. Absolutely. A, it's uh, We have Simon Mikhailovich. Simon, how are you? Very well. How are you? Uh, really well, thanks. And uh, we're, I think we, we count ourselves lucky to, to have you join us today because you, uh, you, were, you had some other duties and were able to get out of them. So really fortunate. That's true. No, but here, here I am. Yeah. Well, before we get into the investing hiccup or mistake that you made in the past and get you to talk about that experience, uh, for the listeners who don't know you, uh, can you just tell us a little about yourself, uh, your background and what you do? Sure. Uh, well, uh, you know, as you already said, my name is Simon Mikhailovich, and I'm a founding partner of uh, Tokyo Bullion Reserve. But my 30-year investment career has really uh, been in the um, distressed investing, and uh, in let's say between '98 uh, and uh, 2014, uh, I also focused. I focused primarily on distressed assets in the credit space and complex derivatives. Uh, CDOs, uh, credit default swaps, and strategies uh, such as this. And so the experiences I'm about to share come from uh, that part of my career. Yeah, as you are, it's, 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 I mean, Simon, you, it's no secret to any regular Real Vision viewers. You and I are dear friends, and, and yeah, I, I, I'm always so happy when I get a chance to talk to you about all of this stuff because your perspective, not just on, on uh, the things that happened in 08 and through that credit crisis uh, from the seat you had there, but your views uh, on life and the way you the way you can communicate those are always just so much fun to listen to, and you 
you, know, you and I never never leave each other without me sitting there thinking, damn, I wish I could have thought how to say that the way he did because it's just so good. So just uh, just jumping into the thing that you want to talk about that you got wrong, uh, am I right in guessing that it did come from uh, that to, to 2007-8 or was it before that? It was 2007. It was it was early when the crisis just got started before anybody knew that the crisis was going on. Um, should I get? Should I just get into it? Yeah, sure, go for it. Uh, the what I'm about to discuss is 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 is, is an experience that we had. Uh, we, being my partners and myself, with our uh, several funds that we were running uh, at the time in 2006. 2005, 2006, we, we came to the conclusion that there was going to be a big crisis. And we started looking for ways to um, express it, or I should say to find a way to profit from it. And in seeking the way, we did not have the same level of conviction that some other people had in just putting a uh, short lever trades. So we tried to come up with something because we didn't know how long it was going to take to come up with something that was essentially allow us to sit on two chairs with one behind. Uh, and what I mean by that is to go long short where we would be, uh, we would buy protection, be short, of uh, credits and uh, tranches of CDOs that we believed were going to be end up worthless, and then go long, pay for that short by being long, the super senior tranches um, of uh, high yield, let's say, indices, uh, CDX it's called, that we were pretty sure we're going to survive um, under most scenarios. And so we constructed portfolios in, in, in a couple of vehicles uh, that reflected that view. And essentially, we're paying for, the, for being short. You know, you, basically, you get paid to wait, or you sit and you get paid a little bit to wait, but you're not bleeding uh, negative premium like you would uh, in a uh, directional short. And uh, that all was very good until in uh, June of 2007, the two um, hedge funds from Bear Stearns blew up, and there was a high-yield sell-off during that summer, which then in August precipitated uh, the Fed uh, dropping rates and uh, sort of curtailing that phase of the crisis. So what actually happened was that things that we thought – fundamentally, we, we posited everything correctly, meaning things that we were short ended up being worthless, things that we were long ended up being fine – but unfortunately, in real life, in real markets, that's kind of not the way it works. When you are in a real-life situation and things are not going your way and you have to make decisions, you have to protect capital, people have entrusted you with money, and you can't just sit there, stare at the screens, and keep losing money every day, even, even if in the end you think it's all going to work out okay. And so what happens was, what happened was that even though the super senior tranches, meaning the, the AAA risk, was from a credit standpoint safe, the sell-off in that space was tremendous because of the technical flows and liquidations that started happening very quickly. Whereas the short that we had, which was on the junk, uh, didn't do nearly as badly because there was a different investor base. They were much more long-term oriented. Uh, they were not buying, you know, hyper-levered, super senior risk, and so they could stand they could stand the course better than most. And so a number of things happened. Technical liquidity turned out to be completely different than one would think. You would think that people would be dumping junk junk and running to quality. They dump quality and ran to junk, which is not intuitive, but that's because of who was owning what. Uh, the correlations on which such strategies are based completely broke down. 
Not in the way that people think in a crisis when everything goes the same direction down. No, uh, the shorts were not going down nearly as badly as the longs. And so every day you showed up uh, to work and you were not short enough. And so you had to keep managing that. And in the end, of course, it's all you do is you get run around the pole and, and lose more money. Um, and then, of course, the counterparty risk. And in this case, it wasn't the fact that we weren't um, that the counterparty failed yet. That that happened next year. But uh, when you're levered, uh, you have counterparties that may call on your leverage. Now, that did not happen to us. But in the mere fact of trying to manage that situation uh, exacerbated the problems. And so that's what happened. So in the end, the oh, and, and the final thing, uh, which also turned out to be critical, is the kind of money you're managing while you're doing all this, because we had two funds. One was a five-year lockup, long-term fund, fundamental. Uh, that fund did fine. But the hedge fund that had monthly liquidity didn't do well at all, because we were trying to manage volatility. And when things are completely break, break, broken down and you don't know what's the next day is going to bring. You're trying to react in advance, and of course, you end up overreacting. And so the uh, the fund that was liquid and where we tried to defend the positions lost 38%, uh, a peak to trough. And the other fund was only down a few percent because, frankly, we just stood our ground and didn't do too much. So sometimes doing nothing is better than doing something. Um, and that's what happened. And I can share the lessons from that, but that's that's the gist of it. Yeah, look, I mean, that, that's uh, it's it's a story that's going to be familiar to a lot of people that were in the markets at those times and, and saw exactly what you saw. I mean, I, I certainly saw it. Um, that that liquidity became everything. It was the only thing that mattered, and so people saw what they could, not what they wanted to. Um, but but you know, when you when you talk about the lessons, I'm fascinated to know what you took away from that and how it shaped the way you look at structuring these risks. Uh, post-08? Well, what I took away from that is that leverage uh, in the moment of uncertain liquidity is an extremely dangerous thing because you don't really have ability to foretell which way things go. It's, it's, it's like I said, liquidity sometimes is counterintuitive in the moment of distress. Things that you would expect to be very liquid become a lot less liquid and a lot more volatile, where things that are inherently illiquid are uh, potentially become less volatile because there is no liquidity and nobody does anything. So if you're executing a strategy that relies on leverage and leverage relies on hedges performing as expected, um, you may be for a big surprise. And that, in fact, a lot of funds did blow up. We thought we did badly, but then when the experience was over, one of our clients, Fund of Funds, approached us and said, so we thought they were coming to berate us. Uh, and they came to say, so tell us what you did right and why didn't you lose all the money like all the rest of these strategies in the same space. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, so the lessons are, you, you, you know, leverage is very dangerous. Uh, ability to hold a trade is uncertain. Uh, it's not necessarily in the hands of your counterparties. It's also in your own hands in a way that are you capable, uh, do you have the stomach to sit there and watch losing 2-3% every day without any idea as to how long this is going to go on for. And as a fiduciary, do you have the stomach to sit there knowing that the people have entrusted you with money and you're losing it? And even if you think you're right, at some point you have a duty to mitigate, to mitigate the losses. And of course, as soon as you start mitigating the losses, you're preventing uh, your ability to come back when uh, things that are oversold or overdone uh, revert to where they should be. So ability to carry the trade 
both emotionally from the manager's perspective and from the counterparty's perspective of not pulling the leverage uh, and, and uh, pulling collateral from under you uh, is something that I don't think most people kind of put together. Um, so you have correlation risk, you have counterparty risk, and you have liquidity risk. And the problem, I think, that the technicals and given the, um, you know, let's say the ETF market today, given the un- uncertain nature of some of the instruments that are being used and untested nature of some of the instruments that are being used, uh, I think these are huge unknowns. And the more leverage there's in the system, the more unknowns and the more drastic the uh, the outcomes. And so those are the lessons that I took out of it. Yeah, Simon, it, it, I guess it doesn't matter whether you're trading complex derivatives or whether you're trading ETFs. I mean, those principles apply um, and you think about it seriously. I mean, I mean, Grant and I were talking about recently this four times levered ETF that was recently approved by the SEC. So uh, those lessons that you just talked about there and the takeaways from 2007 um, I think hopefully our listeners will, will take that in and consider it seriously for their own trading. Absolutely. Well, what I took away is that in October of seven, we, lo- we launched a directional short fund. We just said, you're going to want to be short. You got to be short. You, you can't play games. And so that worked out very well. Of course, uh, the timing was very good. But even there, there's, that's, there, there are lessons we learned there as well with counterparties, with Lehman failing and not paying. Other people paid, so diversification. Uh, but in the end, you know, all the shorts were paid off by the U.S. government. Because, but for the fact that all the banks got bailed out, nobody would have collected anything from from these types of contracts. And that's really something. That's why I do what I do. That's why I decided that the next uh, crisis should be played through something that's not levered and not counterparty dependent. Because of these lessons, I think I can guess what that uh, what that thing might be. Rhymes with old. Well, yes, it's yes, it rhymes with gold. It's physical gold because it has no counterparty, uh, and it's completely independent, and it cannot be impaired, and nobody can pull it from you. So I've just decided, based on my experience, that this is the way to go next time. I, I may be wrong about that, but you know, uh, given what I see so far, it it, it it continues to feel pretty right to me. Well, Simon, it's, it's been a great discussion, and um, I wish we'd go on for longer. But for our listeners who want to follow you or or read your work, uh, where, where where can they do that? Sure. They can follow me on Twitter, uh, S underscore uh, Mikhailovich, M-I-K-H-A-I-L-O-V-I-C-H. The website is bullionreserve.com. Just one word, bullionreserve.com. Yeah. Well, I've already, I've already, I've played my cards. Everyone knows uh, that you and I are friends, but I, again, I can't endorse uh, your work highly enough. You're, you're, you're a great source of information and rationality to me in an often irrational world. And, uh, and I appreciate every time I get a chance to talk to you. So Simon, thanks so much for doing this for us today. Thank you so much. Of course, thank you. And Grant, it was great um, to finally speak with, with Simon because I remember when I first first started watching Real Vision, I think Simon's interview was one of the first or you know second, I think second interview yeah, I had ever early. watched. Yeah, very early. Um, and I, watching Simon and then listening to what he was saying and, and the way he was, and listening to, observing the way he thought, I felt like it took my understanding of gold to another level because I, I, you know, I, I came from, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say like the, the underground when it comes to the gold world, but to hear someone like Simon um, speak about gold in, in such a nuanced and sophisticated way, I think, I think made me think differently about gold just well, as an so asset. Simon, Simon's perspective is, is colored by, you know, a childhood growing up in the Soviet Union. You're not Russia, the Soviet Union. It's important to understand that. So Simon's seen um, a lot of the things that people want to own gold to protect them against. He's seen them happen for real. And so he has that 
that frame of reference that that make him understand and and uh, and uh, entertain a range of outcomes that most people just don't have the capacity to assume. His tales are much much farther out than most people's, and that's a really useful thing to have. Yeah, expropriation and confiscation aren't aren't just difficult fancy words to, <laughs> exactly to, to right. say. They're they're real concepts that you know he he understands and lived through. So, uh, yeah, it's just it was it was amazing. Uh, great experience speaking to to Simon. Well, look, that brings us to the end of this episode. Before we cap things off, just a quick friendly reminder that the current price for an annual subscription of Real Vision TV will be going up from $364 to $597 on June 7th. So, guys, make sure to lock in the price now. Or, look, if you're on the fence, go and sign up for a seven-day free trial and see it all for yourself. And now just a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, read the stars if you want, and trade responsibly. Yes, and next week we will be back with the usual long short segment and things I got wrong. And apologies again for not airing the Bitcoin episode, but we'll be back next week with that specific episode. And we've got some great contributors. And in light of everything that happened recently with the ransomware and also how Bitcoin's rocking up to, I think, over $2,300 just this past week, Um, we're going to be covering Bitcoin. We're going to tell you everything you need to know and also give you some forward-looking guidance on what Bitcoin has in store and what it means uh, for you and also for the global economy going forward. So don't miss next week's episode on Bitcoin. In the meantime, if you have an interesting question about uh, anything you've heard on this week's show or for that matter, anything else, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Leave those reviews, folks. They really do help. To keep up with, to date with the latest interviews, research publications, uh, and podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can just search for us at Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter, if should the mood take you, at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you back here next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com